0: Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. So glad that you're joining me as I am going to continue the study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Last week, uh, I began into chapter two and I gave you a little bit of an introduction to tell you about when you deal with these seven churches uh, that Jesus uh, sends these, this letter to through the Apostle John. Remember, these were seven churches in an area back then known as Asia Minor. Today it would be equivalent to modern day Turkey. Um, These seven churches were very close together. They uh, probably knew each other and and had some contact, we would think. We know that Paul referred to uh, the church at Colossae uh, from the book of Colossians, reading the, the letter to the Laodiceans that he sent to them, and vice versa. They would read the letter to the Colossian church, so we we think these churches had some interaction uh but remember these seven churches were literal churches, <clears throat> each one of them had problems had had strengths and weaknesses uh two of the seven, the Lord has nothing negative to say about them at all. Five out of the seven he does have some criticism, we might call it constructive criticism, but um and we also added this one other final layer. Uh, to our discussion or interpretation, and that is that we think there is at least something to the historical uh, view of these seven churches. I went over over this last week. I won't repeat it in great detail, but to tell you that we believe that each of these seven churches also uh, has some correspondence, some picture of the seven ages of of church history, seven periods in church history. Uh, And I'll just just briefly refer to those each time we come to uh, a different church. So last week we finished just the first church, the church at Ephesus. Remember, this is a famous church. Paul wrote a book to uh, this church called the, the the Book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Paul was the founder of the church. We believe John the apostle who wrote Revelation later goes back to uh, Ephesus. Uh, well, he first goes there and becomes their pastor, and then we think he went back after his exile on the island of Patmos. This is just tradition. Church tradition tells us this. We can't uh, verify it 100%. Uh, but anyway, remember that church had a lot of good things going for it in the first century. It kind of pictures the first century church, say 30 through 100 AD, you know, after the Lord goes back to heaven in his ascension uh, and all the way to the end of the apostolic period. We call it the apostolic period when the apostles were all still alive, John, John, We think was the youngest apostle. He lives the longest, dies around 100 AD or very close to that. And that's the end of the apostolic period or the period that might be pictured here by the church at Ephesus. And so go back if you have time, if you didn't already, listen to last week's episode to launch into these seven churches. I really would urge you that you would do that. I want to move right on to our next church of the seven Uh, the church at Smyrna, and as we always do, let me read the text first, and then we'll go back and make some uh, comments. Verse 8 of chapter 2 says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things sayeth the first and the last, which was dead and is alive, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now again, we told you last week with the church at Ephesus, all these uh Churches or the statements made to the churches by the angel, which we think is the messenger, probably the pastor. Jesus is directing his words through that medium, through that uh, source. You know, God speaks through church leadership, through pastors and other church leaders, uh, to give the word of God. Teaching pastors, especially uh, a senior pastor, a a teaching uh, pastor in some uh, some sort, would be the one giving the message to the church. And so he says, "Under the angel, now the church at Smyrna, uh, write these things: say it, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive." I told you there's a strong similarity to all the the seven churches, how he introduces himself to them, kind of even the order of saying good things and 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 negative things if necessary. Now the church at Smyrna that I just read is unusual because it's one of the only uh one of two of the only churches that Jesus had nothing negative to say about this church. The other church that will be only positive in his comments will be to the church at Philadelphia, the sixth of the seven churches. But this church is is the first one of the seven that the Lord has nothing negative to say. And that's because, and is a very keen reason why uh, we can say he was so positive and commending to them, is this is the church that's suffering the most. He has the most to say about suffering. You know, suffering is something that we don't know a whole lot about and these uh, late times of church history in the 21st century, especially American Western Christianity. We are, we are lacking real uh, dedication and devotion that's really caused by persecution and, and suffering. I tell you, if you were a Christian in some other part of the world who was suffering for your faith, you'd have to really live your life out and have, have dedication and determination and diligence and be willing to give your life if need be. And I have to admit, as an American Christian, as an American pastor, I, I don't know a lot about that. And, and so I'm not going to claim I do. But uh, i tell you, the church at Smyrna knew all about suffering. Uh, this, this church, like all the seven churches that existed in this late uh, first century, uh, at the time John writes this book, uh, they were all suffering. We know persecution was on the rise. And, and by this time in the late... First century A.D., uh, Christians were being put to death in the Colosseums. They were being put to death in various means of, of torture and and uh, and uh, just horrible ways. Uh, we know the Roman Empire was was in total conflict and, and confrontation against early Christianity. The whole worship of the emperors and the Greek and Roman uh, pantheon of gods was totally denied and uh, uh, and. Uh, repudiated by Christianity, a monotheistic. Remember, we're monotheists. We believe in one God. Yes, He's revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we're still monotheists. We believe in one God, and yet the Roman Empire despised that. They they hated that. They uh confronted that and 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 chose to try to stamp it out in the first 3 centuries of of uh the Christian church history. And here Smyrna is going to be a good example. Notice how he starts out after he talks about he is who Christ is the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. This is a similar statement made several times. It's it's all about his eternal nature. He's God. He's always existed. And then he goes right into saying I know thy works. Remember how he said that in verse 2? He'll say it to all the churches. In verse 13, he'll say it to the next church. And he basically says to all the seven churches. And he says it to them, your church, to my church, to our church that, churches that we're in. I know thy works. That's important to remember. God knows what your church is going through. And tribulation and poverty. Now, notice he jumps right into, after he states their works, he goes right into their suffering. Now, he didn't do that with, with the church at Ephesus though I'm sure that church was suffering too. But when he talked about their works, he went into thy labor and thy patience and and so forth. Here, he jumps right into the main uh, area of of discussion, and that is how much they'd suffer for the cause of Christ. I'll tell you, you know the dedication of any individual Christian and in any church by how much they're willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. I, I hope our church would live up to that standard and that... Uh, that challenge. Are we willing to suffer for Christ? It's easy to live the Christian life when when everybody seems to like you and you don't have any problems because you're Christianity. You're not being rejected. You're you're not uh, being uh, excluded. Uh, people are not, uh, uh, you know, keeping away from you when you're not losing a job or losing a, uh, a family member's, uh, you know, uh, fellowship or, or, or friendship. Uh, there's a lot of ways we suffer. And even in this period, they were even more Uh, deep and lasting. Of course, people literally suffering by uh, being arrested, being uh, killed, uh, losing their families, losing their jobs, their, their livelihood, and so on. So he says, I know thy works and tribulation. And notice what comes after it, and poverty. See, poverty was part of it. Uh, we know this from, uh, in the book of Acts and in the book of Second Corinthians, we hear about Paul uh, traveling around with his companions, his fellow laborers, to take up a special collection for the church at, at Jerusalem, the, the first mother church that was suffering so greatly because the Jewish uh, leadership and the non-Christian Jewish uh, people that were still living in, in and around Jerusalem uh, were persecuting the early Christian uh, church there at Jerusalem, the, the the first believers, and they no doubt were losing their jobs and and their businesses were being boycotted. We can go on and on and see how poverty uh, would come about. And the Lord said, uh, uh, "I know thy poverty, uh, all that they went through." I will tell you, uh, God never promised us riches and. And health and wealth as this modern uh, uh, so-called charismatic uh, 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 kind of uh, idea, the whole charismatic movement, the contemporary progressive movement seems to be emphasizing too much. Uh, God promised us suffering. He never promised us that, that we'd have health, wealth, and prosperity. Here's this church that he has only good to say about. And look what he brings up about them. Your tribulation and your poverty but to show his real feelings and his real love and heart for this church. Look at what's in parentheses after that. But thou art rich. But thou art rich. Wow, isn't that great? Uh, I'm reminded, let me go back and pick it up, and uh, uh, the great verse that talks about how Christ set the example uh, with this. He said in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. What a lesson. Jesus, the creator of the universe, God in the flesh, come down to the earth. Yet he was born in obscurity. He lived in a little uh, far-off village called Nazareth. He never had anything of this world's goods. When he leaves to begin his public ministry, he has to stay in people's homes or or outdoors with the apostles. Um, He had nothing of this world. He, and it spoke there in that verse about his poverty. Through his willingness to be poor on this earth, we become rich through his work for us. And in the same way, he says to this church, yes, you're poor. You're going through great poverty, great, great trouble and tribulation. But I think you're rich. Now, let me give you a, a little preview of a total opposite to that. We're going to see the opposite of that statement uh, made about the church at Laodicea. Um when he says to this church, um, verse chapter three and verse number seventeen. Uh, here's, here's the, this is the church that we picture and I'll get to it later. I shouldn't be even going too far into this because we're going to study it later in chapter three, but I want to give you the opposite of the church at Smyrna. It is the church at Laodicea and it pictures the end time church that I think we're living in now, the church age, a period of church history we're living in. And notice what he says of them, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What a total reversal. To this church of Laodicea, he says, you think you're rich, but in my eyes, you're poor. But back to the church of Smyrna, they were actually poor in worldly standards, in, in, in material things of this world. But with the, what did the Lord say? But thou art rich. What a, what a great perspective to have. You know, Christians uh, often in in history, and there's been a few exceptions. Some Christians have been blessed and been able to handle having a great amount of money and material blessings that they can bless other Christians and ministries and, and God's church. Uh, but not many Christians are like that. Most of us uh, can't handle riches because we it goes to our head. We begin to live for the riches and not for God. Uh, that's why the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. When Paul wrote that in First. Timothy 6, he wasn't saying money's the root of all evil. He says the love of money. And we're all selfish and covetous by nature. And so most Christians and churches can't, can't have a lot of money or it goes to their head. They don't know how to deal with it. And so here he says to this church at Smyrna, you were poor, but I say you're rich. What does he mean by that? You're rich in spiritual things, the, the true riches. Jesus said, I'll give you the true riches. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, he said, but in heaven. He said, lay up your treasures in heaven. And this is what this church did. Now, after commending them for all they had been through uh, and stating their poverty, now he goes into some specifics. And he's going to also talk about uh, their doctrinal position. And and, you know what a church believes and how it lives by its beliefs are important. We're going to see what appears to be almost like a very uh, intolerant close-minded, harsh treatment of people in their church, but that's not what the Lord's going to say of it. Remember, this is a positive, not a negative. He says nothing negative about this church, and here's what he says about the church, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, the very fact that he doesn't mention uh, the church at Smyrna's response to these people who were uh, committing blasphemy. Blasphemy is a sin of uh, putting yourself on an equal level with God. It's, it's claiming to be God or it's dethroning. It's either elevating yourself or, or de, uh, de-elevating or, or de-putting uh, God under. It isn't bringing God down. It's, it's bringing Him down and yourself up. And so when he says, I know thy or the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan, the very fact that he doesn't add anything uh, as far as the response of the church at Smyrna, I have to believe, as I've read a number of other commentators that agree with this, that it must have mean they were taking the right stand towards that. Uh, Because if they weren't, he would have said something about that or could have said something about that, as, as he will uh, later at the church at Pergamos next. And he said about the Nicolaitans in verse 6, um, he said he hated that, uh, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's, a, that's the extent of what he said about the church at Ephesus dealing with the problem of Nicolaitanism. And it seems to be that in this church at Smyrna, there were people uh, who were calling themselves Jews and are not. Now, uh, we're not sure exactly. It's impossible to be certain whether these people were ethnically Jewish. Uh, really, were they, were they Jews or were they not? Or were they like some people? <clears throat> even today, we have people who, who want to jump on a bandwagon and claim to be some kind of a person uh, because of what might be associated with that. Um, I'm of the opinion, since we're still in the first century churches and there still were Jews in all the early churches, it's probably likely uh, that these people uh, were Jewish um, and maybe prided themselves, gloated, uh, uh, boasted about their Jewishness, and the Lord says they are not. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, Uh, Again, there's several ways to look at this, but I'm going to stay with this interpretation to say that in the Lord's mind, a true Jewish person, this is true today too, not just back when John wrote this uh, book of Revelation. I think a true Jewish person, they have a responsibility, an obligation, a duty to turn to Jesus Christ and see Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth as the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures All that the Lord said in bringing his Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Christ. And so uh, if a Jew rejects Christ, they're not truly Jewish in that sense. Uh, Now there are, thank God. We have some Jewish believers in the world. There's always been Jewish believers. And there was a lot more Jewish believers in the early churches than there are percentage-wise today in churches. We just had our good friend Phil Solowski on our program a, a few months back now or so, and, and uh, we told you about him being a, a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, a completed Jew, you might say, complete in his faith in the Messiah from the Old Testament. I happen to believe that his words uh, of rebuke towards these Jews in that church at Smyrna meant that they they could have been possibly ethnically Jewish, but they hadn't believed on Christ, and he says, are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, the very fact he brings this up without any further explanation must mean that this church at Smyrna had either excluded, which means dismissed or disciplined these uh, troublemakers out of the church. That's very likely uh, because the Lord is saying they're of the synagogue of Satan. I don't think that means they literally uh, you know, put a sign out in front of their synagogue or meeting place that they were worshipers of saints. Remember, they claim they're Jews. What he's saying is really in their beliefs, in their divisiveness, in their uh, persecution against true Christianity, they are like workers of the devil. They are really making up a synagogue, which a synagogue is is a preview of what the church assembly was. It was uh, in the Old Testament. They started synagogues later in Jewish history when uh, the Jews were dispersed out of Israel. They couldn't go to Jerusalem. And for 70 years, there wasn't even a temple there, we know. And they would form synagogues, which are just a local assembly where a rabbi or would teach the Old Testament law and and so forth. So synagogues were like a precursor, a preview of of what the uh, church assembly would be like. <clears throat> so the Lord calls them synagogues of Satan. <laughs> uh, wow, that that's a pretty serious charge. And so we see here that this idea of the synagogue of Satan, uh, evidently the church at Smyrna rejected these. People who may have crept in uh, to their church, Uh, we see this uh, dealt with in the Book of Acts. We see it in the in the little book of Jude. Remember how Jude, the little epistle of only one chapter, but boy, it's hard hitting. Jude talks about people in the early churches that evidently were were creeping in, sneaking in, being imposters, claiming to be true believers. Uh, They were false converts, really, who were who were led of the devil to create trials and troubles and to infiltrate the church to try to divide it from within. Remember the devil's two main uh, weapons have always been to divide from with, within or to conquer from without or, or to destroy from without. He's always tried those two methods. We see it throughout church history. He'll either get the, the wicked in the world on the outside, uh, even if they be claiming themselves to be Christians, uh, to destroy his true flocks, his true people, Uh, and if he can't destroy them from from outside persecution without the church, he'll try to bring division inside the church among its own people. And so a house, Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. And Jude writes in the little epistle of Jude, verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is is just sexual illicit perversion and, and corruption and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so uh, this is what could have very well happened in this church at Smyrna, but he's commending them, though he doesn't do it in a in a real blatant outward way since he's only saying good about them here in this text, it apparently means that they dealt with that uh, that uh, that Jewish so-called segment in the church there that were really undermining the Christian faith. They were ungodly men. Uh, it wasn't that they were forming a literal synagogue of Satan. They they were, they were actually try, uh, becoming like a synagogue of Satan right within the midst of the church at Smyrna. And I'm sure the church dealt with that. Uh, I have to go and make an aside here and talk about church discipline for at least a moment here. You know, church discipline, uh, which has many facets to it. I've taught on it. It's in some of our earlier uh, episodes of the podcast when we talked about church doctrine and, and ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. But uh, just by way of a quick uh, summary, we know the church is supposed to be a pure, holy assembly. The church is made up of the believers, not the building you meet in, not the structure. It's built up of, of the believers. It's a saved, baptized assembly of believers that come together in one locality, one place, whether that's outside, whether it's in a building, doesn't matter. A cathedral doesn't have to be a beautiful edifice and beautiful structure. It's the churches, the people, the call out assembly, the ecclesia. And so when that uh, holy group is infiltrated or has error uh, or sin, I think the Bible teaches three reasons for church discipline. Uh, it could be moral failure, doctrinal uh, corruption, or divisiveness within the family of God, within the family of the church. And all three of those are very serious and can destroy any church. And so anytime a church has, has doctrinal uh, uh, deviance, if we could call it that, people who are trying to promote or teach false doctrine within the church and, and go against its doctrinal uh, purity and statement, or, or when immorality or some kind of outward sin, uh, sexual sin, it could be drunkenness, it could be just sins of the flesh in general, if that, if that becomes uh, uh, known in the church, uh, or, or if they're divisiveness. This is another serious sin, maybe, maybe not as uh, understood and, and often sadly neglected more than the first two, but God hates division. Of the seven things God hates in Proverbs 6, He that soweth discord among the brethren. And so I think this church of Smyrna had this group in it. And because they were uh, divisive, no doubt, and, and doctrinally wrong, and there could have been some, some immorality and moral issues as well. We, we can't be sure. But I'm sure that the church of Smyrna did what every good godly church must do. They must confront that sin, call these people to repent. And if they won't repent, then they have to be dismissed or removed from the membership. And only true, sound churches do that. The church I'm in now, the church I pastored in Ohio for 16 years, unfortunately, we had to take disciplinary action a few times. You hope to never have to do that. You pray you'll never come to that. And you call people to repentance. And in a few times, thank God, over the years, I've seen people who were called on the carpet, so to speak. Their sin was brought to their attention, first privately. Then, if they wouldn't repent, it had to be brought publicly. But in some cases, people did repent, and they were reconciled to the church, just like the Bible teaches. I'm giving you a short version of this entire teaching, but it's an important one. I think this church at, at uh, Smyrna was doing that. Well, let me move on. So uh, now he goes into this great uh, verse 10, which is such a beautiful verse. It goes back to their suffering. I told you these, these believers at Smyrna were so persecuted and, and, and there's such hardship and, and trial uh, that he just commends them and keeps bringing that up. He says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Wow, that's future tense, shall suffer. It didn't sound very good for him, uh, for them uh, in the sense that he says, you're going to still suffer, and they needed to know that. You know, uh, the more you know something uh, is so, the more you can prepare for it, you don't, you're not taken off guard. We need to know we're going to suffer. We should never tell a new believer, a new church member, uh, that the Christian life's going to be a bed of roses and a walk in the park. It's, it's going to be suffering. We're called, it's appointed to us to suffer for his name, Uh, the Bible teaches. And so he says to them, don't fear this. Why? Because I'll be with you. Now, he goes in more detail about this. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Now, the devil, is he meaning the literal devil? (laughs) Very well could be. Satan's only one person, one individual. Uh, It could mean a system. It could mean a leader that's controlled by either the devil himself, Satan, or by one of his many demons. This is demonology and Satanology, of course. Uh, The devil could just be, it could be a euphemism for evil itself. Doesn't matter. Either way, uh, the devil's going to work against, and he does against every godly church. You have a good church that's trying to do God's work. It's going to be hated. People are going to come against it. And so we see this idea, behold, the, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Now, back in those days, this was literally happening. And it's still happening in some places in the world today, friend. This is not totally uh, uh, you know, unheard of in our 21st century world. But now in Western Christianity, we're not suffering this way. People in atheistic, communistic, uh, Islamic countries and and... and Countries that hate Christianity, Hinduism and in India and Buddhism in some places are, per, are persecuting Christians. The Christians are still the most persecuted group in the world, friend, bar none. There's nobody like, uh, nobody comes to the level of persecution that's being exhibited against Christians. Uh, so then he says this, you should be cast into prison that you may be tried. Isn't that interesting? The word tried, tested. Uh, God tests our faith through persecution, doesn't he? You know, you you only know how much you really love someone or they love you by the hard times in your life. You know, you have a good marriage if you and your spouse have went through hard times and you've stuck it out together and you've grown closer. That's what God does with tribulation and trials. The Christian that's never tried is going to be a weak, flabby Christian. We exercise our faith through tribulation. We become stronger in the Lord, the power of his might. And he says that you may be tried. I'm going to let you go through this. See, God has a purpose. That's why any group that claims to be Christian, that tells you you should never suffer, you should never go through hardship, it's not God's will for you to to be poor or to be sick or whatever, these are false teachers. Stay away from such people. God puts us through suffering on purpose, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Tribulation, another word for trouble. Now, let me... about this 10 days. This is a very interesting statement. And and many commentators believe, and I agree with them, that the 10 days does not mean 10 24-hour periods. Anytime you see the word day in the Bible, it it does mean a 24-hour period, but it doesn't always denote one particular 24-hour period. It could mean a period of time. And the very fact that the persecution against the early Christians and then all the way through the rest of, of Christian history, including even up to today... Uh, it's existed well, a lot longer than 10 days, 10, 24-hour period, uh, periods. And and so even Smyrna, uh, he wasn't saying, you're just going to be persecuted 10 more days and then it'll be over. Like, you know, uh, 10 days, 10, 24, 240 hours from now, all your persecution is going to be over. He's not meaning that. Most scholars agree, and I do as well, that he is predicting something very amazing I'm not going to take time to read all the names, but I will tell you this. It could be proven. It's been shown in many a book on the book of Revelation, giving you commentary on this book. Uh, Bible, some good uh, study Bibles have it. We believe he's talking about 10 different Roman persecutions, uh, probably starting with Nero. That's that's the list that I use when I teach this in more depth and go into those 10 emperors. You can list them from, from Nero, to the last emperor before Constantine, and each of those ten emperors uh, instigated uh, a terrible persecution against the Christians where thousands of believers were killed. Now, it doesn't mean it was a easy thing when those ten weren't I- in power because there are some periods in between those ten, and Christians were always hated during those first 300 years or so of, of, of Christian history. But I think he's referring to 10 specific periods of Roman persecution against the church. Not only Smyrna, but all the churches. We don't know how long exactly Smyrna lasted until it, it just went out of existence by either dissolving or whatever. But I think this tribulation 10 days was for their church, but also for other churches and for the Christian, uh, early Christian churches for the next several hundred years. And that was definitely played out. We have now history to look back and prove what I just said. This is not making, making, making this up. We have all the details of the terrible wave of persecution that ten of these Roman emperors uh, unleashed against Christianity in the early churches. And it's horrifying. And I think that's what he was referring to. But listen how he ends that. It doesn't end by just talking about the ten days of persecution that will come. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Oh, that's what the Lord calls us to. We're to be faithful to the end. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. That doesn't mean we hold on to to our salvation and we can lose it if we don't hold on. It means God's holding us. But our job is to endure. We're to continue on. We're to finish well. Paul said, I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Boy, that's so important. Uh, We just had a dear saint in our church who went to be with the Lord recently. And when I was speaking at her memorial service, few days ago, I said, the thing I loved about this dear woman of God, this dear saint, she finished her race well. That's what I pray every day. God, let me finish well. I don't want to be a castaway. I don't want to be, uh, you know, a casualty, get out of the race. I don't believe you can lose your salvation if you're truly saved, but you can't, but you could get out of the race and not be effective for the Lord. You can die in an unfaithful state. Not faithful to God. I want to be faithful to death. Jesus said, if you do, I'm going to reward you. These crowns. Jesus says, a crown of life. These crowns are rewards given to us by the Lord. I love this. There's five crowns in the New Testament. I'm not going to take time to go back and look at all of them. You can look them up in a good concordance and so on. But what they are special rewards. And God keeps the record, man. That's a wonderful thing about suffering for Christ and all the good you do for Christ as well. He's keeping the record You'll not always have everybody pat you on the back or remind you of some good thing you've done or commend you or applaud you. Don't worry about that. You don't need man's accolades and and man's applause. God's keeping the record. Jesus said in one place in the Gospels, if a man gives a cup of cold water in my name, he will not do without his reward. And so he says here to this church, you endure to the end, you be faithful, I'll give you a crown of life. And that crown of life is, is just a picture of eternal life and enjoy. You know, all Christians are going to go to heaven. That's true. But you know, this is true too. Not all Christians are going to enjoy heaven the same. That's only right. It's only fair. The more dedicated, godly Christian is going to have a greater place with Christ in heaven and in his kingdom on earth and in in the new heavens and new earth. Of course, he's going to have a greater place. Paul said, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Not every Christian suffered as much as other Christians. And I think some Christians will have greater reward because of that. But let me end this section. We're getting out of time here. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Get used to that. It's said to all seven of the churches. He's just telling us in spiritual hearing now, not physical hearing, spiritual. You better hear what the Spirit says. And let every church and every Christian learn from what he says to these seven churches. And then he ends, he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. You know, that's a, just a statement about a Christian. That's really a very basic statement, really. A Christian's an overcomer. We talked about it earlier in one of the episodes. A Christian overcomes. We overcome sin and the world and the devil and the flesh through Christ. We're not overcomers by ourselves. We overcome through faith. Who is he that overcometh? He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. First John 5 tells us. So when we overcome, what happens? We won't be hurt by the second death. And that second death is eternal separation from God in a literal place called hell, which will finally be realized in what's called the Lake of Fire. We'll see that later in this book of Revelation. So, we finish now the look at the church at Smyrna. God willing, we'll pick up next time and look at the church at Pergamus. And remember, conviction for truth and compassion for people.